You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. When you're out on the mountain, only one word matters when it comes to your gear. Reliability. Whether it's your ropes, your airbag, or your watch, you need to know your gear will perform 100% to its specs. Anything short is simply unacceptable. This peace of mind and confidence is exactly what you get with the Koros Vertix watch. As one customer of you put it, with Koros, 60 hours means 60 hours. So don't settle for flashy numbers on the side of a box. Choose the watch with a proven track record of excellent battery life and reliability. With Koros Vertix, 60 hours means 60 hours. Battery life is based on traditional GPS use and heart rate. Excessive backlight or third-party sensors can cause quicker drain. The Cutting Edge receives additional support from LOA, making boots in Bavaria for almost 100 years, and from PolarTech, celebrating its 40th year of outfitting climbers. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to mention the new Membership 2.0 from the American Alpine Club which publishes the AHA and produces this podcast. Climbing is inherently risky, of course, but with the enhanced rescue benefits of Membership 2.0, you'll get a little more peace of mind in the mountains. If the situation ever goes south, the AAC's enhanced rescue and medical expense coverage will get you back to the trailhead, to the nearest hospital, and then help pay your insurance deductible or medical expenses once you're there. There's a lot more to it, including medical evacuation coverage at higher levels of membership. Learn all about it at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Now let's get to this month's show. This is an episode that anyone who loves climbing in Rocky Mountain National Park is really going to appreciate, because it hits pretty much every climbing highlight in the park. Early on July 17th last year, Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold hiked up the Longs Peak Trail and started climbing Mount Meeker's Flying Buttress. A little over 36 hours later, they ended their tour of the park at Bear Lake, having climbed 11 classic routes and bagged 17 peaks or spires. They got support along the traverse from Adam Stack and Maury Birdwell. Tommy called it the Continental Divide Ultimate Link-Up, the Cuddle Traverse. Almost all of these mountains are visible from right outside Tommy's home in Estes Park, Colorado. When COVID-19 kept Tommy and Alex from traveling abroad last summer, they both took great pleasure in exploring Tommy's backyard. I don't need to introduce these guys, so let's just jump right into the interview, which Chris Kalman conducted earlier this month. Alex and Tommy, thank you guys so much for sitting down and chatting with me today. And what we're going to be talking about goes way back to July of this past year. So it's been a while, but still a really cool story. Uh, you guys did what you you dubbed the Cuddle Traverse in Rocky Mountain National Park 
and chaining 17 summits, 11 technical routes with 65 pitches clocking in from 5.6 to 5.11, 35 miles and 20,000 feet of vertical in just about a day and a half. Super cool climb. And I think probably had a lot to do with COVID and the state of the world we find ourselves in. So really looking forward to, to learning more about this climb. It's funny. I, I don't think I've heard all the stats listed out like that. And <laughs> when, when we did the climb, all of our various devices died along the way because we were out for too long. Basically, all uh-huh. the batteries died. So I'm like, wow, when you list it like that, it sure sounds like a, a big outing. It's like as we were doing it, it just felt like we were walking really slowly across a really big landscape. We were just getting worked. But then when you list it, you're like, wow, that sounds rad. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it, it was funny when I was like, when I was like conceiving the whole project, I, you know, just like they're all the mountains around my home. Th- so I thought it'd be cool. But I was like, I want to combine running and climbing. And I don't think we ran one step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good thing though, or we would have perished from exhaustion. You know, it's like neither of us, well, actually you're a pretty good runner, but I'm a terrible runner. There's no way I could have run any of that. We just plotted along. That's good beta. I was wondering whose brainchild this was. Um, not surprised to learn that it was Tommy since it is in your backyard. I guess th- maybe that brings me to one kind of quick question, Tommy. You've been looking at these mountains for so long. Why'd you wait uh, until now? Like, why not do this sooner? I, I mean, I've done various link ups in the park, um, but I don't know. I'm just like, I didn't want to suffer that much, I guess. <laughs> or, I mean, it's a, it's totally. slightly, in, in some ways it's hard for the, like now that we've done it, it seems like such this obvious thing. Like we basically climbed every major rock wall in Rocky Mountain National Park, but it didn't seem that obvious until you kind of started to piece it together and be like, oh man, if you could climb all these in this order, it'd be really cool. I, I think even even as we started working on the project, it wasn't totally clear that everything could go together the way it did. I mean, like adding Mount Alice, you're sort of like, oh, do you really have to walk all the way over there to climb this other wall? You're like, geez, that sounds like a lot of work. And then once you do it, it sounds, you know, it it all works out pretty well. You're like, oh, we climbed another classic. But, you know, when you're planning it, you're like, really, do we have to climb all these things? It's like, it's it's almost too much. Yeah. And yeah. And so many of these things, so many of these linkups just seem obscure at first until you link them together and then they just kind of make sense until there's, you know, once, once they're a story and they, they get cohesive. Yeah. Alice was kind of the outlier for me. Um, I've got some familiarity with the park just from time spent there and I could kind of piece together like the first half of your traverse and I could piece together the second half. And I was just like, wait a minute, Alice, like, but then you kind of look at a map and it's like, you guys definitely did it at the right point in the link up. And it's like, well, it's a lot of walking, but I'm guessing, did you guys free solo that one? Cause like five, eight, right? No comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, uh, we, we did, uh, we did what we felt was safest given the conditions. You know? Fair enough. Fair enough. But, uh, you know, yeah, it, it is kind of weird cause that one's way off to the side, but it, it's also what the second biggest wall in the park. And so to skip it would also feel like a bit of an omission because you'd be like, Oh, we climbed every other major wall in the park, except for that one that we skipped. Cause it felt like a little too far out of the way. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's a bummer. I remember when we were reconning it too. At first, you're like, "Oh, that's dumb. We shouldn't do it." And then we walked over to it and we're like, "Ooh, that looks mega. Like maybe we we don't want to do it because it's too mega." And then we climbed it and we're like, "Oh, actually, that was pretty chill and it all worked." So 
And, and it was uh, it was really fun too, for what it's worth. I mean, we got to like we say down into the the bowl to get to the bottom. Like it actually worked out being quite a lovely climb. You know, like it definitely added to the experience. Yeah, I think the only reason it's not more um, popular is because you just can't see it from anywhere like you can all the other climbs. Yeah, I've always only ever approached it um, from Wild Basin, and that's a pretty long walk. <laughs> yeah, it's so far. Yeah, I think we realized it actually probably makes more sense to approach it from Bear Lake than from Wild Basin, potentially. Uh, you know, it's actually a really easy walk from the top of Cheesehead over to it. Huh. But then you'd be like, that'd be like a 14-mile approach. No, I think right? it's actually I think it's actually less mileage to go over Chiefhead than it is to go from Wild Basin. But um I, I think we we looked at maps, I mean, obviously <laughs> extensively trying to plan <laughs> this. And uh and it, it was not obvious if one way was better or worse than the other. Gotcha. Well, I don't want to get too too into the reads here, starting like jump starting into the middle of the story. Tommy, you you kind of mentioned some of the history of link-ups in the park. Could you walk us through just a couple of the big things that inspired you to to do this big traverse? I mean, I did a link-up with Topher of just climbing five routes on the diamond in a day. And then Kelly Cordes with um, Johnny Kopp had climbed what he deemed the three biggest walls in a day in the park, which were the diamond, Alice, and Chief's Head. And I thought that was a cool link-up. And then a few years later, Topher... Donahue and somebody else came and and did like a like a smaller version they they climbed like you know four or five of them or something um so in my mind just climbing all of them seemed even cooler although you probably could even do more like you could continue on and maybe climb um you know go solo up some ridges farther north in the park too and make it even bigger but you'd have to uh you'd have to pick up a fresh set of legs somewhere <laughs> the halfway mark yeah totally we would for sure <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so can you just kind of i mean i don't know how long we want to spend on this but can you kind of walk me through the traverse itself kind of like where you start which peaks you tag you don't have to like give us a play-by-play but but what were some of the cruxes of the the day and a half? Like, did things go? Were there things that didn't go to plan? Were there times when you were thinking about quitting, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Well, so actually, let me just do the full basic overview. I mean, we basically followed the Continental Divide from south to north for you know what turned out to be thirty miles. I mean, that's kind of the cut on in a nutshell. But then we also try to combine as many classic climbing routes as we could along the way so that it wouldn't just be a hiking slash running feat. It would be more of like an enchantment of all the great rock climbing in the park along the Continental Divide. And so then, you know, it was just sort of up to us to choose which climbing routes were the best and, and then try to link them in the most uh, obvious way, you know, without that didn't involve too much backtracking or, or you know, detouring. So, I mean, it was kind of complicated to figure out how to get to the base of some of the climbing routes and then to get from the summits of the route to the summit of the peaks, you know, things like that. No, but anyway, I mean, Tommy, you want to just walk us through the whole, the whole journey? I mean, so we, we went and we reconned all the peaks. It was like a lovely month of climbing. I mean, I've definitely climbed like twice as much in that month long period in the park than I've climbed in my entire life. It was a really cool thing to do during COVID. Um, and I climbed a lot of mountains I had never climbed. It was, I don't know, it was just super fun, but, um, the day did not go as planned that we ended all, all our recon trips went pretty much as planned. It was all, you know, just quite lovely. We did all just mega classic routes. Um, so the climbing wasn't super difficult. We passed a lot of people 
knew we we knew we'd have to cut uh, cut weight a lot, so we actually climbed everything on a uh, six mil rope. <laughs> Oh, I wow. Okay. I was going to get into gear. So, okay, keep going. <laughs> Which I wouldn't, yeah, maybe we should get into gear a little bit later. But we, you know, we had pre- pretty small packs. Um, and, and, and we climb fast, you know, we're just all of our link ups we've done together. It's like the climbing part is usually like we did all the, all the routes in like probably one to two pitches each simul climbing. Um, so the actual climbing went, that's kind of like our secret weapon in a lot of ways. I have an ultra running friend who, who's like, I want to repeat it. And I'm like, well, you'll definitely go way faster than us on the hiking, but the climbing part, I don't, I don't know, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know how far you want me to go into it right now, but there was definitely some parts that didn't go as planned that we should get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Like, uh, starting where and starting when? Well, everything went as planned all throughout the first day basically but then we had we had a friend who was going to come up and resupply us like this wasn't a self-supported trip we had we had um a little bit of stashed gear and we had some friends coming up and like resupplying us but the but this friend totally botched the resupply right before it got dark so we ended up going like i don't know five or six hours with no food we were in like short shorts because we were trying to go like runners (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all all through the night climbing in short shorts we spent uh i don't know like four or five hours like plotting along with our with our iphone um flashlights flash yeah to to guide our way i like jammed it oh, underneath my, my hat <laughs> and the night the nighttime was pretty miserable because there was just like this bitter cold wind and we didn't have any clothes and and we were at uh and we're at thirteen thousand feet or whatever. I mean, we're basically on the summit of the Continental Divide, you know, downsoling ridges by iPhone light. You know, like you're holding your iPhone and like trying to solo five four at the same time. It was all pretty engaging. And so at the end of day one, you know, at this moment you're talking about, where in the traverse were you roughly? So it got dark um, on us when we were climbing up um, McHenry's Mountain. So we we just topped out Arrowhead. You know, we had climbed for basically an, an entire day, and we had finished Arrowhead right as it got dark. And then as we were climbing up McHenry's, um, that's when we had to click on our our iPhone <laughs> lights. And then we ended up, and so that's kind of like the longest section of kind of scrambling without roping up. Um, you go up McHenry's through the McHenry's Notch which luckily we had reconned and then over and then dropped in to climb uh, the Sabre. I think it was, was it the Sabre. Oh, no. Um, uh, what's the name of that peak? Um, Powell, I think. I have McHenry's, Powell, Taylor, Petit Grapon. Oh, yeah. Sabre. T- Taylor is, is the peak we tagged. And then we dropped down to what, what was the name of that little notch that we called, Tommy, where, uh, you know, where, where we basically met Adam Stack and like posted up in the night. Yeah, and eight burritos and yeah, sure. yeah. But we had a name for that that crazy little hanging, uh, that hanging resupply spot. But basically, like from the summit of of Taylor, we had it, we had sort of pioneered this this way directly down to to what the saber, the petit grappon, and and what's the third one? The sa- shark's, uh, oh, shark's tooth. tooth. Yeah. yeah, shark's tooth. Exactly. So like all three of those spires are kind of off the actual continental divide. So we had to kind of find a way to scramble down off of Taylor, drop down to those three. And then find a way to climb all three of those sort of freestanding spires and then get back onto the Continental Divide without it being too difficult, which is, it's like a really complicated zone. It's like super steep, it's super cliffy. 
And, you know, and all three of those are freestanding spires. So, you know, they require rappelling and like full on technical rope work. But and, and to do all that in the night when we were freezing and sort of worked from not having had food. And, you know, it was it was all like it was all a bit much. The night was pretty grim, actually. It was pretty hardcore. And that's when I kind of like go into super drive mode. So I actually just kind of jumped into that mode, like as if you're in the real mountains. And it was like, I was like, wow, this is real. This is like living, you know, we we're like get building character, right? Now. <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> and then, and then when the sun came up and you think everything would get all lovely again, that's, I, I kind of like that, that I bonked hardcore and like it, started throwing up and stuff and it was weird because it was oh, actually when it was, when it was like warm and nice and suddenly we should just be happy that's when i felt the worst that that's also because tommy tommy like really took the lion's share of the effort through the night partially because he had led those routes before and actually the petit grapon i'd never even climbed full stop so i'd never like i never even touched the wall before and so to find it at you know two in the morning or whatever when you're totally freezing all felt like you know anyway so tommy led that whole block because he actually knew what we were supposed to be doing you know so it was a pretty heroic lead through the night but then obviously tapped into reserves a little bit because when the sun came up i was like oh thank god i'm warm and happy again and i felt like pretty good actually but tommy was like totally worked from you know this heroic night session i'm still not totally convinced if it's from uh, the night session or from just like eating too many like shot blocks <laughs> yeah it's hard enough i didn't nail the nutrition like in in uh things i've done since then i like just eat way more real food and i feel way better <laughs> it's, just, it's it's just hard to know though because anytime you're doing a 24 to 36 hour push like you're gonna feel terrible at some points and it's just i think somewhat hard to anticipate you know how it's gonna hit you and um i don't know i mean maybe for ultra runners or people that are used to like running 100 milers you know they're used to that kind of thing but but for us as climbers, you're like, man, we don't do a whole lot of more than 24 hour pushes. You know, it's like hard to dial that in perfectly. Yeah, as I I was sort of wondering, like, at what time you guys were in that territory, because that cirque back there where all these spires are is super complicated. And then the rock, it's not it's not like climbing Serenity and Suns in the valley or something. You're on this um, this weird nice that's sort of discontinuous and it's a lot of face climbing and it can be pretty hard route finding that's why tommy was in the lead because you know with headlamps on terrain that you've never seen before there's like no way i could onsite routes or or yeah i I couldn't realistically onsite routes like that in the dark with no idea you know i'd have to be looking at a topo nonstop, trying to like look for traces of chalk on the wall or something so it's like otherwise it's just really hard to know I mean, I think Rocky Mountain National Park in general has a lot more face climbing than I'm used to, where you're basically just questing up a face and, you know, placing gear here and there. It definitely requires some experience to get a handle on that. Yeah, at least to do them them fast and efficiently and not get lost constantly, especially in the middle of the night. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure, like, you know, I think the Petit Grapon route you guys climbed is 5'8", but, you (laughs) know, it's the sort of thing where... You can be like five feet to the left and you're like, okay, well, I can pull these moves and so I'm just going to keep going. And, you know, you might not pick if you're especially if you're trying to go fast, you might not get the actual line and suddenly a five eight is like hard 10 or low 11 or whatever. Yeah, I think that one I climbed in my tennies too, actually, just because we were so cold because, you know, we were in shorts and it's freezing wind. And uh, so keeping the approach shoes and, and the socks on was pretty nice. 
but then it all starts to feel really mega because you're like, oh, this it's like face climbing is a little bit technical. And and suddenly my, my approach shoes feel a little slippery. And I don't know, it was, I mean, the, the nighttime was kind of a terrible experience, actually. Is the nighttime when the cuddling occurred? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we, the name we can't, I can't believe we can't remember what we, what we called that little hole um, behind, <laughs> behind shark's teeth that we, that we cuddled in. But yeah, I mean, we were going to stop and eat food and our buddy Adam Stack was supposed to bring us like a, like a warm something. <laughs> he ended up bringing us like this worthless cotton uh, yeah, sleeping bag liner. Sleeping bag liner. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think it just made us colder actually, but we tried to, <laughs> we tried to have it help us warm us up. It didn't really work. I mean, I, it's funny. I, we named it the cuddle. I was like, ah, that would be so funny if we actually had to cuddle because we got so worked and then we kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so the name came first. The name was, was Tommy's genius idea, but then we wound up having to cuddle anyway. So, but I mean, we, we probably sat there for what, maybe an hour sort of eating and resupplying and drinking and just like shivering next to each other. And then, which was pretty grim because we sat there an hour, we didn't get any warmer. We didn't get any more comfortable. And then, you know, it's like two in the morning or something. You're like, all right, time to go climb three more spires. You know, and you're like, oh man, it's so grim. Yeah. And the wind was pretty, pretty heavy that night. Yeah. So I don't want to belabor the cuddling too long, but I've got to ask a question that I'm sure everybody's wondering out there. Who's Big Spoon and who's Lil Spoon? <laughs> well, well, in, th- in this situation, we just we just like sat next to each other trying to curl up in <laughs> balls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in general, Tommy's the probably the Big Spoon. I mean, he's the manlier man for sure. But in this case, we were just <laughs> sitting next to each other. The thing is, we both had a lot of things to do, you know, in terms of resupplying our bags and reorganizing our food and refilling our water and whatever, you know, just like managing. So we were both sitting there like doing stuff but trying to make sure that our legs were touching as much as possible because we were both so cold. <laughs> yeah, and, and in shorts. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, we were both in running shorts, sitting in a cotton liner with like 25 mile an hour freezing wind ripping across these 13,000 foot peaks. You're kind of like, really? Like, this is pretty grim. <laughs> yeah. So I was surprised to hear that uh, Tommy was retching a bit on this. I was going to ask you guys, I mean, you've done a lot of really hard climbs together. Uh You've done the sub two hour nose, which um, is pretty mind boggling. Uh, you did the Fitz Traverse, also insane. Where is this kind of rank on the list of crazy climbs you guys have done? I think in some ways it's the easiest. I mean, because it's not technically difficult. You know, I mean, we I think we climbed one pitch of 11A or something. You know, I mean, nothing about it was like, I don't know. I mean, so in some ways it was the, actually, I mean, it and the Fitz Traverse are sort of the toughest, you know, the most physically challenging, exhausting, you know, the most laborious. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because the cuddle was definitely really hard, but I don't think at any point we thought we might fail. We kind of knew that we could just grind it out as long as we kept trying. Because something like the no speed record, you know, it's not just a matter of, of having the will for it. Like you actually have to be able to do it. Like it's actually quite hard. Uh, you know, whereas the cuddle you know, as long as we were willing to to suffer for it, we knew that we would finish it. Yeah. And I think that like my kind of breakdown, my retching was more due to it just being sl- like a slightly different genre than what I ex- had experienced. Like, I don't think we had re- like on none of our adventures have we climbed for 35 hours without sleeping, you know, even on the, even on the Fitz Traverse, like we would sleep for a few hours each night. 
and I just tried to, I, I tried to act like a runner and I'm not a runner. So I don't really like, I think the, the nutrition thing kind of is just a botch. Actually, the, the real takeaway is to not wear running shorts, just to wear technical climbing pants at all times. <laughs> <I'm> like, oh, <laughs> I feel like it's just so cold. Yeah, definitely. If you're not going to be running. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I couldn't help but think about uh, a guy we're all friends with, Austin Syadak. Austin's never going to do a sub two nose run, uh, and neither are essentially any of us on this planet. And even the Fitz Traverse might be kind of a tall order, though he could probably pull that off. But I got to imagine that if Austin got a mind to do something like this, he could probably put up a pretty good uh, challenge at your time if he had a good partner. Do you guys think that's accurate or you think uh, this is still like kind of another level above people who are really good mountain runners and definitely decent climbers? I think that a solid ultra runner or like a solid mountain athlete like Austin would have a good shot at doing something like this. But I think that the challenge would be the rock climbing, basically. I mean, like Tommy said, we were simul climbing on a six mil static line. And so our rack and our rope and all of our equipment was incredibly light and we were basically carrying nothing. And then we were simuling everything in a single pitch. And that's kind of only feasible because we felt so comfortable on the climbing. And I think that if you were an incredibly fit ultra runner, I think that might just feel a little bit full on, you know, but then if you brought more gear and if you brought a heavier rope, then it's harder to go faster on the other parts because it's just too much weight. I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure somebody will do this. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. But, um, but I do think that it, it did suit our skill set really well. And I think that, well, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, maybe an ultra runner will do it in 18 hours and it'll be like, whoa, maybe we should practice our running a little more. You know, it's just hard to say. <laughs> Yeah, I have, a, I have a friend, Luke Nelson, who, who's like kind of stoked on it. He said he wants to do it. And um, he did a big link up in um, City of Rocks this last, you know, a few months ago. The climbing was pretty easy comparatively. So I'm, I'm I am just like, he'd have to become a much better climber. Yeah, I mean, we, we climbed, uh, we climbed route Birds of Fire on uh, Chief's Head, which is, I don't mm-hmm. know, some classic like 10 pitch 11A. But to be simul climbing 11A slab, on a six mil static line requires a pretty high comfort with, with slab climbing that I think that most ultra runners probably don't have. And not to say that they couldn't pitch it out and sort of make it work, but then you're also dealing with weather and stuff. I mean, when Tommy and I got to the base of birds of fire, it was like, I forget if it was actually raining or threatening to rain, but we were sort of like, Oh, it looks stormy. Like, should we try this? And we were sort of like, you know, I think we'll be done in an hour or, or less. Like we may as well just punch it and see what happens, you know? But I think somebody who is less comfortable with the climbing, you know, probably wouldn't be okay charging up a 511 like that with with a storm threatening. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. There's quite a difference between being like, cool, I'm going to maybe skip a few pieces or a few bolts on an 11A slab and being like, cool, I'm going to simul climb 11A slab after 18 hours of moving uh, on a six mil rope. I know. I know. It's like we, we were using the six mil. And I mean, Tommy swore that it was rated and that it was safe and it was all fine. But I don't think I ever waited it once. You know, like even when we built anchors, I was yeah. like, there's no way I'm hanging on this. <laughs> what was it that a spree rope? That no. sort of white cord? No, it's a Edelred wrap line. It's, yeah, it's uh, a wrap okay. line. It's, it's a pretty cool rope, actually. I mean, I, I've, I've tested it like crazy in like a drop tower mm-hmm. and I'm really confident in it, actually. It's got Kevlar in it. It's got, um, uh, okay. yeah, so it's like part Kevlar, you know, part nylon. And it actually has this thing that if you take a really gnarly fall on it, it'll, it'll like, 
break the sheath, but the core will still hold. Um, so oh, you know, nice. you know that you will you will live, but um, <laughs> you need to not you need to not use the rope anymore. <laughs> nothing, uh, no, nothing quite like breaking the sheath on your six mil to really make you feel like you're cheating death. You know, it's like as yeah, it like, is, it looks like a shoelace. It's funny because Tommy, uh, Tommy led a lot of the things, and uh, like on the diamond, we climbed through several parties, and I had multiple occasions, both on the practice runs and on the actual cuddle, where we would climb through parties, and as I climbed through, people would ask like, "What are you guys climbing on? Like, what is that rope?" And I'd be like, "Oh, you know, it's this thing that uh, Tommy he swears it's safe, so we'll just we'll." <laughs> <laughs> like I, i've never waited it and i'm not willing to uh tie in with it in an anchor but i'm, I'm sure it's fine <laughs> and we uh and we use like little teeny tiny beaners it's like it's like our rack was like was like um jewelry you know <laughs> yeah, <totally>. yeah. <laughs> you got it out of your kid's toy box <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's it's a uh, zoolander style it's like what are these beaners for ants it's like they need to be five <laughs> times as big I'm glad we worked a Zoolander reference in yeah. this. <laughs> Alex, I did want to ask you, or maybe, I mean, either of you can answer this, but was the decision to use a rope partially because Tommy's a father? Alex, if you were to solo something like this, or sorry, if you were to just do it on your own, I mean, do you think you would free solo all the routes? Or were there other reasons why it was like pretty essential to have a rope? Well, so I think that... It- you could do a link up like this, mostly free solo, but the rope, the thing is you need a rope though, to repel off a couple of the formations, uh, you know, namely the, the shark's tooth and the, the saber and the petite, basically the freestanding spires, you kind of need a rope to get back down. And then for birds of fire and, uh, I forget what it was called on, on arrowhead, but, um, or maybe it was aeroplane or something. It was some kind of arrow word, but it was another five eleven that we did. But a couple of those routes, I mean, you could free solo them for sure, but you'd kind of have to dial them in and like make sure you had it. It basically would be pretty full on to free solo. And then I think also just the fact that it storms every day. There's not that much chalk on the routes because they're getting washed by thunderstorms every day. It's I, I think it's a pretty full on place to do any kind of difficult soloing. I don't know. I mean, it kind of makes sense to have the light rope with you. Um, I think that if it were me personally doing a similar type of traverse, I maybe would have modified the objectives a little bit, you know, basically made it a little bit easier so you could stick to free soloing. But I don't know what we did, though, made sense, it seemed like, and kind of worked. If Alex lived in Estes Park, I'm sure you would have come up with something that was maybe slightly different, but still climbed all the same walls. And you could have done it solo in like half the time. I don't know. But I, I don't know. But so for me with the cuddle, though, I've, I've never climbed in Rocky Mountain National Park, basically. You know, I've climbed there like one or two days and bouldered a day. And so for me, it's this incredible way to learn a new climbing area to basically get guided by Tommy up all these classic routes. And so, you know, yeah, like Tommy said, if I lived there and if I climbed on those things all the time and if I felt comfortable on the weird slippery rock and, and knew how to route find, it's like, yeah, maybe you could do a free soloing link up that that could be a little faster. But but what we did was perfect for me. Gotcha. So it, it sort of sounds like Tommy's expertise was maybe the clutch piece of gear for the the whole thing other than that and the rope what else did you guys bring i don't know like did we bring anything we brought these <laughs> ultra light harnesses we brought like some like uh, kid-sized toy belay device for the rope we brought uh i don't know like yeah uh, we brought we do we usually simul climb with like the with these spock things yeah yeah kind of like micro tractions but the even even lighter that are the spocks um so if the second person falls they don't pull the top person off 
Um, we still gotcha. do. We still brought a Grigri um, as a belay device. Uh, we were climbing on the Z4s, the the BD cams. They're light and they're freaking awesome. Really like them. What was the biggest cam you guys brought? Number one cam a lot, maybe. I don't Probably. Think we brought it. Yeah, I don't think you brought a number two. I think we had like a set and a half of cams up to number one. Uh-huh. We had we had doubles in a couple sizes, and I don't think we brought like two nuts or three nuts. Did we know? even bring nuts? I don't, I don't remember having nuts, but but we brought a, a bunch of slings and beaners because uh, to simul something like birds of fire, you basically need a lot of quick draws and beaners and things because right. you're going a really long right. distance. Well, we had to take all the cams, all the beaners off our cams. <laughs> totally. So we really used everything we brought. And then we had very little clothing. Like we might have had like a long sleeve shirt and like a windbreaker. Uh, or no, like rain. We had rain jackets, like lightweight rain jackets. And then we had food that got resupplied on occasion. But, you know, our packs were real small. We, we both were using running bags. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. I mean, how, do you remember how many liters your bag was, Tommy? It's like 15 liter backpack or something. Yeah, Jeez. which which is crazy because we're carrying a lead line in a rack in that, you know, it's like normally I hike to the crag with like a 55 liter backpack, you know, and, and and yeah, we were like ultra traversing this mountain range with like 15 liter bags. It was it was pretty wild. Were you worried at all about monsoons coming in? I know when I used to live there, uh, we would just assume monsoons would happen at about 1 p.m. It didn't matter what the forecast said. It could say 30 percent chance of rain. It could say 80 it was just like at 1 p.m., these massive torrential downpours with thunder and lightning would come and hit you in the Alpine. I know you guys were climbing in July. Was that like a concern or have forecasts improved to the point where you could have a little more assurance? I mean, I think forecasts have improved. Like I've totally changed my my climate. That's what I remember with my dad climbing when I was young. Like the rule was you had to top out by noon so you didn't get struck by lightning. And that was like a must and it's just not that way anymore. Um, we had a whole month where we didn't get any real serious thunderstorms. Like, No, that's not know. true. I mean, it definitely rained like a bunch. Yeah, but it would just kind of like sprinkle and maybe, maybe there'd be a little bit of lightning. Like you usually get these like crazy gully watching, <laughs> like actual monsoon thunderstorms. And- I mean, for, for somebody like me who is from California <laughs> and now lives in Las Vegas, I was like, it rained all the time. It was totally crazy. There was lightning. I was like, dude, it was, yeah, I considered it pretty weathery. And even on the day that we did the cuddle, I can't remember if it rained on us or not, but it definitely was threatening. You know, it, it felt like it could at any moment. Yeah, it got like it got like a little ominous and a few sprinkles came down, but it was never even like wet enough that that rock climbing was even, uh, at, you know, like we were still rock climbing the whole time. I can't help but chuckle hearing you two kind of talk about like describing the rain because I learned to alpine climb in Rocky. And I remember my first trip to uh, the High Sierra and I was going to go do Cathedral Peak, which is like this super chill four pitch five six. And it was described to me as an alpine climb. So I asked my partner who was living at the Tuolumne SAR site. I was like, well, what time do you guys want to start? You want to start like five in the morning or four? (laughs) You know, it's just like it's totally different worlds uh, that that sort of Rocky Mountain weather pattern compared to that High Sierra one. Yeah, it really is. It's funny. Yeah, exactly. For Cathedral Peak, you're like, yeah, let's go at uh, 1130 or maybe at noon, you know, nice casual climb. Like everything in Rocky Mountain National Park, you're like, all right, we'll be up at one. We'll be at the base of the route at four. You know, it's like totally insane. Although we were able to like keep climbing all day long, kind of all month long. is, And I think we lucked out quite a bit, honestly, with not really having a real monsoon, which, uh, you know, which is why a third of Rocky Mountain National Park burned this, you know, this summer. 
afterwards. There was like there was way less moisture in these mountains than there really ever has been. That might be kind of a good natural segue to start talking about something that I wanted to get your guys' opinion on. I, obviously, with COVID, we were all kind of grounded this this summer, but in general, I think I've seen a lot of a lot more interest in staying local uh, in the past couple of years amongst mountain athletes like yourselves, partially just due to climate change and and keeping a low carbon footprint. Do you guys, does that factor into your decision-making at all? You know, saying, say, do something like in your backyard in the park versus going down to El Chalten? Or would you say this was like purely COVID-based decision-making? Well, for me, this was neither in a way. Uh, You know, it's partially COVID-based, but it's also just a great opportunity to climb in a new place with a great partner you know, I was like, oh, a tour of Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm totally into that. Uh, you know, COVID definitely factored in, but but it's also, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, Rocky Mountain National Park is, is sort of a world-class trad climbing area. It's like a nice way to sample it. Uh, you know, to your more general question about whether or not climate change or, or sort of emissions factor into to my climbing plans, I think that um, for me anyway, that hasn't totally been the case yet. You know, I certainly think about it, but it's not quite at the point where I'm fully changing my climbing plans. I don't know. It's hard to say though, because I also live here in Las Vegas, which has perfect year round climbing. So it's not like I have to make an effort to stay local and climb. It's just, you know, I can't actually climb here year round and love it. So it doesn't feel like I'm changing my plans at all. I'm just, you know, I live here for a reason basically. Yeah. It's, it's similar for me. I mean, I get joy out of not driving a car. I try and limit it, limit my international flights to like one or two trips a year. Like I, it feels good to have a lower impact, although it doesn't it doesn't like rule my every move. And then COVID, um, yeah, I think that played a big part in it. I was like, well, the whole rest of the world is kind of off the table this year, so I might as well just you know experience my backyard better. And then I was psyched that Alex could come out, and it was really kind of a nice sort of vacation in the midst of COVID because we had been isolating with almost nobody, and then you know, Sonny and Alex came out and then, and then our friend Sandy was, you know, we had like this band camp in our driveway for a month. It was super fun. Nice. Do you guys think that COVID is going to have long-term impacts like in the next five to 10 years on the way that mountain athletes like yourselves on the objectives that you seek out and tackle? Or do you think that these vaccines are going to come through and this time next year, we'll all have forgotten about it. Yeah. I, I personally think that COVID won't really have a long-term impact on, on climbing. I think that, uh, with the vaccines rolling out, you know, people will be back to normal relatively soon. But I do think that what you're saying, uh, factoring climate change and just decision-making will be a bigger part of, of being an outdoor athlete you know, as, as we move into the future, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but I I can see that definitely, or or basically having a greater emphasis on human powered adventures as we move forward. Yeah. Which in some ways it, it, it it provides like a a venue for just a a more, more variety of adventures, like biking to things and then climbing them. Like I'm totally into that kind of stuff. I think it's, I think it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, my climbing changed in this past year to be way more local and also way more selective with the group of people, you know, there's like two or three friends that I was like, all right, well, I guess this is my bubble and we're climbing together. There were challenges to that, but there were also 
unforeseen advantages and things that I really enjoyed about it. Were there any sort of silver linings to this past year for you? Yeah, I mean, here here in Las Vegas, we definitely did some route developing at some new areas, like basically because all the local climbers were at home so much, you know, we sort of doubled down on some of the local areas and, and, you know, put up some new routes and, um, I don't know, like focused on areas that we probably wouldn't have otherwise because we would have been traveling abroad, uh, which I think is cool. I mean, it is nice to rediscover your own backyard and, uh, you know, it's a little cliche now, but, um, but it is true. I mean, it's nice to do things at home. Yeah, and I've, I'd spent the last, I mean, both of us have really spent the last several years doing a lot of events, like, you know, going someplace almost every week or every two weeks to do an event, like a public event. And I don't love that in a lot of ways. Like, I'm, I'm kind of an introverted, it drains me, like it tires me out. And all, you know, most of the events got canceled. So I got to just kind of like, focus on what I really like, which is just hanging out with the people I love and going climbing. And then uh, for me as a family man, it just meant way more time with my family too, with my kids. Like this last year has been incredible in terms of just like bonding. And we have this really, we have this really cool family unit now because of COVID um, because there's basically no distractions from that. And are your kids climbing? Yeah, they're climbing a little bit. I mean, my daughter Ingrid is four. So um, she doesn't climb that much. So um, she, uh, she only climbs 12 C, but you know, she's training every day. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have her hanging from the hangboard at least, you know, an hour a day. Uh, yeah. No, Fitz, Fitz climbs. We, we tried to, we tried to, uh, enter Fitz into, into a class at before COVID at team ABC, like the climbing gym in Boulder. And he took this class and he hung out with friends and it was really fun. And then at the end, um, the teacher like gave us like this report card. They tell you um, how he did and they're kind of, and they, they bring out the report card and they're like, Oh, you know, he needs to work on his footwork. His upper body strength. Isn't that good. And, and, I, <laughs> really? and, I, and I was like, and I was like, huh, that's, that's kind of nice that they tell you this stuff. I thought it was just kind of like they're playing around and climbing a little bit. And how old is he? He, he was six at the time. And then we oh left, we left and, the, and then my wife's like, Oh, and, and then at the end they said, and if he wants to, um, take another class you should probably take the same class again and we left and i was like oh that's they're so nice they told us and my wife looked at me he's like he failed the class <laughs> yeah he has to take it over and we did we did come to find out that he was the worst climber in the class who who wants to be the the teacher to break it to tommy Caldwell that his son is the, the failure of the climbing class yeah but he but he doesn't care he loves it right you know, we, we go to fontainebleau we go to fontainebleau for like a month at, almost every year we didn't this year because and and he loves bouldering there and hanging out with friends it's like it's like a lifestyle thing i you know i i i i'm my, my wife wants him to be a good climber at times i'm like i don't care at all like i don't I want him to just be his his own person, but I, I want him to love the outdoors. So, well, your dad brought you up climbing, right? Your dad was a pretty big climber back in the day as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, all of my all of my intimacy with Rocky Mountain National Park is because of hanging out with my dad and climbing. You know, a lot of the routes that we climbed this summer when I was like, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, climbed the majority of these back then. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, do you guys think that? you'll be doing more climbs of this type or is this sort of a one-time thing? Well, I'm, I'm currently working on a, a very similar traverse of, of the Red Rock range, if you can call it that basically all the peaks in Red Rock. So uh, I think I definitely will be doing more things like this in the future. And 
I'm sure we both will be doing other good adventures like this because it's just such a nice way to interact with the landscape. You know, it's like you see a whole string of mountains and you're like, oh, wow, what, what a it like it gives you a good reason to go out and have a big adventure. You know, and I think ultimately we're both just looking for for good reasons to go adventuring in the mountains. Yeah, I think we're both kind of like exercise addicted a little bit and addicted to big adventures. And when we go sport climbing or bouldering these days, we just it's just so obvious that we're not cutting edge anymore that if we want to be cutting edge, we have to <laughs> we have to do this kind of stuff. Out to pasture, Alex Honnell and Tommy Caldwell. I mean, you know, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but it is kind of true, too. It's, you know, nowadays you have like 21 year olds climbing V17 and you're just like, <laughs> huh, you know, like the, the world of climbing is definitely just charging ahead. And, you know, I don't know. And we're out adventuring on five nine in the mountains, you know, but, but that's fun, too. <laughs> Where are some other places that you think would be ripe for link ups like this in the States? Dude, well, one obvious thing is um, the uh, the Black Canyon, which I've never climbed in at all. But uh, Brad Gobright, before he died, was uh, tried for like three years to get me to go to the black with him and do a big link up there. And it just never worked out for logistical reasons and timing and, you know, just not being in Colorado at the right time. But uh, that would be a prime candidate to do something adventurous with Tommy. Because that would be kind of like doing the Yosemite triple where we could do, you know, multiple 513 big walls in a day or something. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places. I think you could do it in the Wind Rivers. You could do it in the Cascades. You could certainly do it in places like the Bugaboos or... um, yeah, I mean, I think any kind of like major granite area has potential for um, link ups like this. Super cool. And Alex, uh, I know I heard you talk about uh, you're thinking about or trying to plan out this this big link up in Red Rocks. Tommy, what about you? Is there anything coming up on the horizon for you? Uh, you know, I don't have any big link ups like this planned right now. I kind of uh, I have these I have these more more trips planned to just go out and be with the family and be, be in nature and, and, and kind of like bring awareness for, um, basically public lands issues like bears ears and, um, and have this potential cool trip to Tongass in Alaska. Tom, Tommy's busy linking up all three Lord of the Rings books with his son. Which <laughs> is about the hardest link up you can imagine. <laughs> You're going to need like special throat lozenges to, yeah, exactly. to through that one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as far as bears ears goes, uh, do you think that there's going to be, a, um, how do I want to describe it? I mean, with, with Deb Holland and the secretary of the interior conducting a review of the boundary, do you think they're going to restore it to its original size? And if so, what do you think that's going to do for the park or the monument? I mean, I think they're definitely going to restore it to its original size. I think they might make it even bigger. Um, there was a proposed um, monument that was even bigger um, by the by the tribal coalitions, um, which are kind of in a lot of ways leading the charge right now to reinstate it as a monument. And so it's going to it's going to do a few things. I think it's going to protect it in certain ways, but it's also going to bring a lot of awareness. And that place is real fragile. So that's one of the things I want to do is like tell people, um, you know, kind of do some storytelling to, to make sure that people that do go there. Are, are treating it carefully. Like my first trips to Bears Ears or Indian Creek, I didn't even climb with chalk. Like the sort of the history of that place and the, and the, and the old trad climbers was really low impact. We made sure we didn't, you know, walk on any crypto soil, which a lot of people don't even know about anymore. We didn't climb with chalk. And I kind of, you know, I, I think that sort of cultural approach is, is sort of what that area needs. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's really forward thinking of you. And I mean, I've been watching Indian Creek change dramatically for the last decade and a half or however long it's been. I'm sure you guys have been seeing it for even longer. It's sort of on a collision course for something. The MO of just camping anywhere off the dirt road and, you know, digging cat holes and pooping and all that stuff. It just can't seem sustainable for for very long, I think. Yeah, I agree. And the climbers are at fault for a lot of that stuff. But also just as awareness gets raised, it's like you get all sorts of people down there driving four-wheel drive just across the desert and, um, you know, poaching artifacts from all the archaeological sites. It's just there's a lot there's a lot to destroy down there. And a lot to protect. Well, I appreciate both of you guys being good stewards for the sport and, you know, speaking out about issues like Bears Ears and Alex with the Honold Foundation, um, just showing that, you know, climbers can be about something more than climbing. I think it really reflects on both of you. And so yeah, it's it's a pleasure to chat with you and I'm glad that we were able to dig into some issues other than spooning in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> though, though that is our favorite thing to do. So we can talk about that anytime. <laughs> you know. so that's, that's what I like talking about the most, really. <laughs> no, we appreciate you having us on and uh, chatting about the cuddle. I mean, it's always fun to, to relive a good adventure. Yeah, absolutely. You can find a list of the routes and peaks that Tommy and Alex climbed at the Cutting Edge website. Thanks to both of them and to Chris Kalman for doing this interview. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Find their famous catalog at hilleberg.com. This episode received additional support from Koros Vertex Watches. The Cutting Edge is also supported by Loa. Loa began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and now lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Since you're listening to this show, it's a safe bet you have a PolarTech fleece or two hanging in your closet. PolarTech has been outfitting climbers for 40 years, and PolarTech Challenge Grants sent alpinists like Doug Scott, Steve Swenson, and Steve House on climbing expeditions across the globe. The stories they came back with helped fill the pages of the AHA. Now PolarTech is helping us share new stories on this podcast, like next month's episode, a story about a wild climb in Patagonia. Until then, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbing.